Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast. Um, we look at the technology behind the energy news and we review this week's issue of Rethink Energy. I'm Peter White. I'm joined today by Harry Morgan, back from holiday. Hello. Hi. Uh, he's uh, Harry's our hydrogen and wind specialist. Um, solar man, uh, Andrew Swantonar. Hello there. And our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello. On the show today, we'll discuss the EU calling for an import ban on all products produced by forced labour in China, basically the Uyghur region, and ask what this might change. We'll take a brief look at next era in the US, um, setting a carbon zero template for um, all US utilities, perhaps, and how Egypt plans to turn its waste into hydrogen and sell it to Germany and catch up on some other waste initiatives. Finally, we'll ask our Simon, uh, publisher, Simon Thompson, what's caught his eye on the issue so far. So first, first things first, Andres, what has the European Parliament asked the European Commission to get on with and do? Well, quite a few things, but what it adds up to is a uh, basically a customs ban and, and supply chain tracing to make sure that the European Union won't be uh, importing anything made from forced labour. And that's a, a huge, uh, and this is a non-binding resolution and I'm not sure quite how much power the, the parliament in itself has. You could almost maybe call it an advisory policy body or it's a body that approves. Bills Absolutely not. Right. Absolutely not. That, that would be a really uh, uh, unfair way of describing. The European Party, Parliament is the, are the voted representatives of Europe and they hold all the power. Um, but the European Commission does all the work. So... Um, there is a, a strange interplay between the, the, the Parliament and the Commission. Um, so so um, the, the, the Parliament has obviously asked the European Commission to set up um, some kind of rules whereby this can be monitored. And I think the Commission doesn't want to, but I th- what, what you've told me is that they will gradually be forced into doing it if the Parliament keeps on telling them to. Yeah, I mean, there is sometimes friction between the European Commission and the European Parliament, but they, the power really rests in the vote vote, vote of the European Parliament when all is said and done. But but the European Commission is a, is a mighty force on its own. And then, of course, you've even if they're both on board with each other, you've then got, of course, the, uh, the national uh, governments, which would be involved in, in customs enforcement. Um, and, well, I guess we should get on to why it, it matters. Probably most of our readers know from past coverage, but this is about solar from us. It's about uh, Xinjiang. So, so most of the wafer and solar module factories are not in Xinjiang or even close to it. They're elsewhere in China and uh, other countries. But about half of the world's solar uh, polysilicon uh, supply chain element is in Xinjiang. So if you sanction forced labor, and, and by the way, uh, polysilicon production has been uh, accused specifically as well as being one of these things that forced labor is used for, uh, and if you get rid of that, well, then you've gotten rid of probably 90% of the EU's supply of solar modules. I haven't actually checked, but I can tell you what, what the proportion is on the EU end. But it's half of the modules that China exports so far this year has been to the EU. And it's 24.4 gigawatts in four months, which annualizes to 72 gigawatts, which is like uh, at least a third, uh, at least a quarter of the, the global supply. It's absolutely gigantic. And it's it's a miracle if the, if the tone of this piece is remotely impartial, because I was just fuming as I wrote it, the idea that you would when you're busy sanctioning Russian oil and gas, you're also going to sanction the 
solar photovoltaic supply it just made my mind uh, overheat i um yes it's, well, why because you you think that um the european europe is at a disadvantage because it's spending all that money well just because one of the things that europe has said it's going to do to compensate for sanctioning the russian uh, imports of fuel is that they're going to build more solar but then you're going to sanction the solar imports as well. It just seems like you're, <laughs> you're taking on a very heavy burden for the sake of all of these people. But they're not, they're not sanctioning solar imports. They're sanctioning what's going on in China with the Uyghur, uh, the Uyghur Muslim population. So I don't think it's something that you can, you can argue is a, is a bad policy from the EU. I think it, you can't necessarily build a solar sector based on um, just doing it using sort of blunt instruments and using this forced labour. I think there does have to be some level of compromise and if that means uh, Europe are going to have to spend more on their solar then that's something they're going to have to subsidize internally well I mean I mean you can you there's no reason that Europe can't have its own full fully verticalized solar supply chain I mean there's all, all sorts of ways to avoid um, forced labor it's, it's true um, but the thing is right now the people who have built a truly monumental uh, supply chain for solar is the Chinese. They they've just. I mean, this week I I broke into bullet points on three occasions because there's just so many. Oh, another billion dollars for this, another billion dollars for that, another ten gigawatts there, another twenty for this, uh, in, in th for for different parts of, of different companies in China. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Uh, and what is what is Europe doing? Well, it's got this. Uh, European Solar Initiative proposed by Solar Power Europe and Inno Energy that aims for 20 gigawatts by 2025, which would unlock GDP. And, you know, I just look at that and I say, well, okay, when are they going to give it billions and millions of uh, uh, dollars or rather euros? Well, you know, I'm waiting. And until then, it's it's kind of foolish to, to sanction Chinese solar. But having, having said that, uh, a crucial detail of this um, accusation against China is that this time around, uh, you know, I took a look at the the text of the resolution, and it it does seem to be specific to Xinjiang. So theoretically, you could just say, well, we'll use the polysilicon and the, the derivations from that that doesn't come from Xinjiang, that comes from Yunnan province and Inner Mongolia and so on, uh, of which there's quite a lot because this this whole issue has been floating around for years, and and therefore to some extent the the investment in new factories was skewed outside of Xinjiang more than it would have been any otherwise. Uh, but then again. You have the issue of of um, the Chinese government. It doesn't. I don't think it really wants to. I mean, maybe you'll, you, maybe both of you might correct me on this, but I don't believe the Chinese government is very thrilled by the idea of enabling its companies uh, to uh, allowing them to cooperate with supply chain tracing and foreigners poking around in in how China works. Uh, so it might not allow them to. I'm sure I heard something about that. But... I, I think I think all of this is, is is fundamental to the to the the two schools of thought on how to run a country. Um, if you want to get things done, you have a strong central body with a strong central leader, and you uh, and you give instructions down the pipeline, and you don't listen to any feedback uh, coming back that, that that contradicts it. And that's how China is set up. But Obviously, that creates some um, aberrations in the way people are treated. And everybody is aware of that. And uh, everybody... But China gets things done much more efficiently than, than any other large country because the decision-making is in one place and, and it can't be brooked. But, but, you know, whereas in America, America gets things done 
but it goes backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards between two political parties and, and the population is sort of tired of both of them. So, same for the UK. Um, Europe, on the other hand, will uh, is, is even more wishy-washy and, and, as, as, uh, and puts um, the human, human position uh, far, far stronger than any, um, than any, a, any business proposition. But at the same time, it has... And, and it has put aside billions and billions of euros to change direction. Um, so, so when you look at a, a country that joins the EU, it gets billions of dollars to upgrade its infrastructure, billions of euros to upgrade its infrastructure. And that improves the lives of the people inside those countries. And they have to be come up to a certain level. It's a, a civilising influence. Um, and it... it it's and the European Commission embodies that. I mean, they they are you pick the people that will continue with that type of uh, of strategy. These when you come down the business, these these um, political positions uh, just collide. Um, but the buying power of Europe is larger even than America. It's the largest buying force in the world, and it has swayed other politicians. It won't sway the, the Chinese to to change their view on the Uyghurs, um, but, and, and it's, it's in a difficult position. Uh, does it value the trade more highly than, than its sort of unidirectional um, downward management? Yeah, and that's, that's something I'd like to point out. Like, they're not, I don't think they're using the Uyghurs as forced labour so that they can sell more things to Europe. Uh, it's, it's for an you know, a, a internal political control motive that I don't think Europe can really influence. But sorry, that's just my little interjection. The thing is, you know, you can influence through trade. You know, in the end, the, all the efforts to control Putin and stop him going to war with the Ukraine, Ukraine have come to nothing. But that pressure is continued to be stepped up. And over time, it will have an effect, but it doesn't happen instantaneously. It's not the same as walking into a country with tanks. Um, it has a much slower in, invidious effect on things, and I think that the, they wouldn't be doing it if it hasn't shown um, uh, success in the past. And I think the same with China. China you, we have to behave as a civilizing influence on China as best we can. Um, every communist party has come up with the idea that religion is illegal, and every uh, party that's tried to squash religions has come up with failure. So I was just saying, it's really easy at this point in time as well to say that our oh, sanctions don't work. So obviously you can look at Russia and you can say, oh, we've sanctioned their economy, we've now sanctioned their energy sector, and we haven't seen any any sort of ceasefire yet. But sanctions have worked in the past. It's not a, it's not a, a tool that's completely useless in a political sphere. I mean, we saw it in 2015 with Iran. It's very much what brought Iran to the negotiating table was the sanctions that were imposed by the West. So I think you can't. I think realistically, that's something that while it, it's easy to look at what's happening now and think, oh, well, if we're not if we're sanctioning Russia and it's not working, what's the point in sanctioning China? But to be honest, it's the only political tool that the West have to stand up for the human rights of the Uyghur Muslims in, in China. So um, I think to some extent there does there do have to be sanctions. And unfortunately, the solar sector is one that is one that makes sense there if if the Uyghur Muslims are being used as forced labour in in those um, in that industry and there is evidence for that. So while obviously it's counterintuitive in terms of our climate ambition, there does have to be some sort of um, there do have to be some sanctions that address this, 
and um, the solar sector, at least in the Xinjiang uh, region, definitely has to be embroidered to some extent. So, so uh, I'm really interested in something you said in this, Andrew. You said that the um, UN Human Rights Chief, uh, Michelle Bachelet, um, had a recent visit to Xinjiang and, and was was inconclusive on the map. So uh, is this China not letting him see anything which is untoward? Or is this China maybe perhaps revising history? Well, I, I think... I think what Michelle Bachelet herself said, I, I may have actually written that wrong when I say she visited Xinjiang. I think she visited China overall. Uh, but either way, um, what she herself said afterwards when she was getting criticized for not laying into the Chinese, she said, well, this was about improving relations with China. It wasn't about the Uyghurs. And I didn't really see anything too outrageous and so on. And I guess this resolution is, is kind of part of that. We, we wouldn't expect we wouldn't expect China to lay itself open to inspections of, of, of the Uyghur population, but at the same time, um, we might expect China to stop doing some of the worst things and then and then never admit that it ever did those things in the hope of getting better trade. Oh yeah, that does that actually does make sense. Yeah, it's and says it's never changed its position. But oh, come, why don't you come and visit now? And those sorts of things, those sorts of changes do happen. China is aware of its um, uh, its uh, um, financial might um, these days, and it, it, it thinks it can get away with more than perhaps it can. The two biggest markets in the world are America and Europe. If you, if you fall out with them, you're in trouble. You can't you can't trade for a living. So uh, you know China has to find China's under pressure here, and you continually think that we that Europe and, and America can't um, uh, afford to do these sanctions. I don't think they can afford not to. I think they they are both civilizing influences pro democracy, and I think that's something that um, history tells us is getting stronger and stronger throughout the world. I, so I don't think we should be we should be worrying about our own position. We'll we'll make the solar, and, and if we have to, we'll build the factories and we'll do it all ourselves. But we won't have to. The, the, the whole point about sanctions is first you say you're going to do sanctions. Then you rattle your sabers a bit more. Then you start working out what your regime for sanctions are. And then you announce that. You know, all the time, you look at the numbers and the, and the opposition and the people you're trying to influence go, oh, dear, are they really going to do that? And eventually it worked. The, so the other thing to consider as well is that, is, and we've seen this in the past few weeks, that China is very much up, and I can't remember the figure exactly, Andrew, you'll have to remind me, but... 108 gigawatts. China's updated what it said it's going to install this year in terms of solar capacity. 108 gigawatts, exactly. Um, and that's that could be could well be in response to this. That could be well saying, well, if Europe's not going to buy this, then we'll build it, we'll we'll use the solar within our own country. And that itself is is a good thing it's not a loss of solar power it's just a loss of trade for china so and it's a loss of it's a lot of loss of income for china so what we're looking at here is we're looking at realistically the same amount of renewable energy capacity being installed globally uh, just more of it being installed in china and, and while that's obviously not necessarily a good thing for europe's solar sector it's good for the overall uh, fight towards creating a global renewable energy system anyway it, it has no impact on the amount of renewable energy that will be installed in fact it actually might increase if if europe has to react build some more of its own solar manufacturing capability and build more of its own domestic solar output so i think in that sense it actually these sort of tariffs could actually spur more solar power we wait a few more years for the chinese to build all of their polysilicon plants and then we say no we're not buying from you and then we build our own as well and then then you have loads if china starts installing more of its own 
solar at home and has fewer exports, um, it does it at a lower price and it dictates the price to its its um, the companies supplying it. Eventually, they're, they're, they're running on pretty razor-thin margins already. And if they, if they have to um, play ball with uh, Chinese authorities on even lower prices and no subsidies whatsoever, they're going to find that they're making far less profits and there'll be weaker companies to compete with when Europe and America get their act together. Uh, and I think so, so that also plays into the hands of uh, countries doing the sanctioning. I mean, back in the day, like 10 years ago, the EU did pay through the through the nose, to put it in a sort of negative light, for photovoltaics, which were far less cost efficient than they are today. And then because of the 2008 recession, I think all of the European governments sort of lost heart about the that sort of expenditure. But, you know, if you could do it then, you can certainly do it now. No, I, and I think that's the edge that people go on about. That, that if you look at the, um, I mean, Americans keep bringing up the idea that they invented um, uh, um, photovoltaics. They didn't. They they created an industry around it before anyone else did. But but and and they let it go. And they let it go for purely economic reasons. They weren't making enough profit on it. So so. But they've got all the patents. They've got a lot of intellectual property. They've got loads of research institutes that know uh, advanced how to make more advanced um, PV. So, yeah, and so, so is Europe. So, uh, yeah, I, I, there's no question that they can reinvigorate the, the, this industry. There's no question they can. Uh, I just wonder if the political will is really there. Well, it'll only be there if they if they say we're not going to buy any Chinese. Um, so, and then they have to back it up and actually go ahead and do it. And then they'll pull out the money and then they'll get on with it. The second item today uh, is really just about next era. I mean, I've had a, a beer in my bonnet about next era uh, under the, the title of Florida Power and Light. If you, if you look separately at the two organisations, although it's one organisation, um, next era is really known for renewables, but not necessarily supplying its parent company, um, which... which well, now the parent company is Next Era, but it, originally the company was Florida Power and Light, um, and since then they bought Gulf Power and and they they, they control most of uh, Florida's um, electricity, and there's lots of um, there's as, almost as much um, fossil fuel infrastructure in that part of the world as there is in uh, you know a Duke Energy um, part of the world, so. It, it's it's. I've always felt that that, that next year are saying, "Oh, we're the biggest renewables game in the whole of the U.S." was a bit fake because they they hadn't cleaned up their own act, and this is them cleaning up their own act. So they they they've wanted to come out with a net with a, a net zero uh, plan for Florida Power and Light and Gulf Power. Now that well, they're they're combined now, um, and that's twelve million people's electricity. Uh, and it's a big chunk of uh, America's electricity. It is one of the largest um, utilities, and the, the numbers are staggering. You know, it's it's um, it wants ninety gigawatts of solar and um, fifty gigawatts of battery, um, and all it's and the, and the only thing in there I find difficult to accept is uh, it's going to keep just a three point five gigawatts of nuclear. And it's going to convert 16 gigawatts of existing natural gas units to run on green hydrogen. You know, I kind of a step back at that point and wonder, well, when? 
and 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 obviously, you know, it's going to be it's going to be about twenty forty five before it does that. Um, and there is a bit of a promise, so we we will stop burning natural gas at some stage. But I'd like to see, see it happen gradually, and and this is a gradual rollout with um, with landmarks every five years. But right now they've only got four gigawatts of solar in in in, in Florida Power and Light. They're going to go to ninety. Now, the numbers are incredible. Um, the the one thing in here is they're not going to use um, offsets at all. Whereas everyone that's come up with a net zero plan in America is, is to some extent either used offsets or, or said they'll rely on technology that hasn't been invented yet. But one technology that really hasn't been invented yet is, is burning hydrogen in turbines without creating uh, NOx, you know, nitrous oxide, nitrous, nitrogen dioxide. Um, and they're both powerful greenhouse gases. And if you end up getting rid of CO2, in favour of uh, of Knox, you're not really progressing. So it relies on companies like GE and Mitsubishi producing devices which, for the current price uh, that they sell turbines for, include minimisation of Knox um, gases. And yeah, you can look at their websites. They do say that they're on that and that they're planning to deliver it by 2035, 40. Um, but these companies are about as trustworthy as the oil companies um, when it comes to cleaning up their act. So, you know, will I'm not sure that GE, um, the renewable side of GE, will still be owned by GE at that point. I'm not sure that Mitsubishi will still be in the turbine business at that point. But it is relying heavily on them um, finding a, a way forward without producing lots of knocks. So there is a, there's a kind of a bit of a fly in the ointment, but the, here's this. The only thing I drew from it is most of the, the fossil fuel heavy utilities in America have no plan. This is a plan. The, 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 where, where, where Next Era got famous was supplying solar and wind to other, um, to other utilities. And that's where um, I think it's called Next Era... Um, uh, it's it's called near next year energy resources yeah near uh, 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 and it is one of the largest uh, not in the world it says it's the largest in the world it's the largest in the US if you if you count everything that NL ever built or everything Iberdrola ever built in renewables in all their subsidiaries they're, they're larger but uh, and then there's China but really it's still it's still a very huge achievement but this is. Um, this is uh, Florida Power and Light eating its own dog food, coming up with a real plan that is going to um, actually um, to be a proper net zero. And and all those next era energy resources will already have the ear of all the other utilities because they, they build systems which they which provide energy for them. So that, that they're going to be influential in changing the direction of travel for all of the fossil fuel heavy US utilities. I mean, they've all made some kind of step in the last two years, but but this is a shining example of, of how to do the whole job. So, yeah, it was worth noting, that's all. So, so how does this hydrogen burning thing that they have planned for their gas turbines, how is that, what's the normal plan for burning green hydrogen? Why is, is, is nitric oxide or whatever it is with nitrogen specifically a problem for old style gas turbines? It's just it's it's the temperature you burn it at. It's the amount of oxygen that's present uh, when you're burning it. Um, it it's um, it's whether or not you 
run um, some kind of catalytic uh, reaction to prevent it from forming. And that adds expense to the design. People know how to do it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it, the science is there, but it adds expense to the design. Um, if you ask any engineer, uh, have you ever worked on um, denoxing uh, a, a, a process? They say, oh, it's very expensive. <laughs> and that's that's and then uh, that's, that's dismissed as far as they're concerned. Let let, let the, the NOx go into the atmosphere, but we don't want NOx to be the next um, greenhouse gas that we're all campaigning against because hydrogen doesn't need to be burnt to to provide energy. You know, the, the hydrogen fuel cell is 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 a, is a clean energy solution. There are ways of burning hydrogen at various temperatures with various outcomes, uh, with various filters and catalysts that can stop. Knocks from being much of a problem. It can still re remains a tiny problem. Um, and we've got to be sure that that's where we end up, not that we end up with a new problem. And hopefully this Knox thing, or oh, we can get rid of it, it isn't just a variation of um, CCUS. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, in terms of its, uh, in terms of its realism. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was, uh, is it Massey Ferguson that was um, one of the tractor makers or, or the big, big, large um device makers uh, are, are going to burn hydrogen to power their devices and they specifically address the nox issue and, they, and they've got the percentages very low and, and it's all it, it you know it, it just requires a few scientists to sit down and look at the design and make sure that that, that it's not um ignored you know because oh look it's wonderful green hydrogen um harry you, you're you're, you're um, our hydrogen guy you know about this yeah, so I mean, it's something that is—it's an issue, um, and it's certainly an issue when you're burning hydrogen. It's certainly why fuel cells um, are looking to be the preferable option to generate electricity from hydrogen. Um, potentially, the, the reason that turbines um, are taking a little bit of preference at the moment is due to the fact that they're an ex very existing technology. People know how turbines operate. People make turbines. People want to keep making turbines. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them really shift towards fuel cells in the future. Um, that being said, it really depends on the cost curve of fuel cells. Um, I mean, we've, but I mean, our approach to rethink energy obviously has been very much gigafactories are what will drive the change, and gigafactories for fuel cells is much more likely than gigafactories for turbines um, in that industry, anyway. So, I think there will be a shift towards turbine um, fuel cells to some extent because they obviously completely get rid of that um, uh, NOx emissions issue. Uh, and I think that's something that will be, there'll be more focus placed upon um, as the hydrogen industry starts to develop. There are ways that you can capture NOx emissions. I mean, we see them in catalytic, catalytic converters all the time. Um, their efficiency isn't great. Um, I think often they only capture around sort of 40, 50% of the overall um, NOx emissions. So there is, there is the issue there in terms of uh, pollutants. It's not necessarily a warming influence largely. I mean, sometimes it can be uh, depending on what you're, what you're actually emitting, but uh, it's more it's more of a case of pollution, so I think that's something that it will it it can be addressed. Uh, it's just whether or not it needs to be addressed based on whether or not fuel cells is going to be the, the technology to overtake turbines. Yeah, my, my, so so let's say say what we we mean here. Um, all these companies like Nextera are relying on promises made by GE and Mitsubishi. Those companies may fall out of this business um, through a bankruptcy of of a subsidiary, and they may not address it. And those, and then then people like Next Era be holding the baby, trying to transfer all that energy to more storage or to a fuel cell based system, um, and and they'll be faced with 
a new round of costs, which will increase the price of electricity to customers. So uh, that's what's probably going to happen. Um, you know, and that's why this plan isn't perfect from next era. But I do like the 90 gigawatts of uh, solar and I love the 50 gigawatts of battery. Um, although, you know, at the moment, uh, I'm not sure it should be lithium ion battery because um, at 50 gigawatts of it, can you imagine that the phone wouldn't stop ringing for the number of uh, thermal runaway incidents with 90 gigawatts of it? <laughs> oh, sorry, 50. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll follow that. We'll follow that story. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take years. So uh, we'll follow that story. I loved your uh, waste um, story, um, Harry. Um, I thought um, the Egyptians selling their own personal waste to Germany in the form of hydrogen had some kind of uh, political irony about it, but I'm not quite sure I can uh, put my finger on that. So um, um, walk us through it, the details. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it comes following the story we wrote several weeks ago where Germany was very much looking for a new strategy to replace its uh, natural gas, gas imports from Russia uh, and using imports of hydrogen to do so. Um, but the, the key story this week was a, a, a couple of announcements made by a company called uh, H2 Industries, which is based in the US. Um, they signed one deal um, to produce a 300,000 tonne of hydrogen per year project in Egypt, where it will be using 4 million tonnes of organic waste uh, and non-recyclable plastic to create that hydrogen um, using its thermolysis te technology. Um, and it also signed a deal following a um, the, the MEFED Energy Conference in Jordan. Uh, it signed a deal with a uh, German climate minister, or at least a an early understanding with um, Robert Habeck, the German climate minister, that a lot of the hydrogen produced in Egypt could be um, transported again using H2 Industries uh, liquid um, organic hydrogen carrier technology. Uh, it will use that hydrogen. It will transport that hydrogen from Egypt to Germany, where it will be used by uh, industrial off-takers. Uh, How does that work? How does that liquid um, uh, transport work? So um, for H2 Industries, they've not been that clear on how it works yet. Um, it could be as ammonia. It could be as hydrogen, uh, another sort of hydrogen-based compound. Um, but essentially, it's likely to be a liquid uh, or something that's easy to is a, a dense way and an easy and safe way of transporting hydrogen. Yeah, I, I, I can say that. I can say I've got an easy, dense way as liquid, but without revealing the details, that's easy. Uh, uh, but you should get on that and find out what it is, because I'd be really interested. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not true. I just want to know what it is. No, I mean, I mean, it, it, it will just it will be safe. I mean, it could be something like hydrochloric acid. It could be something like um, ammonia. It could be any sort of hydrogen uh, hydrogen based compound that you can. I mean, probably not hydrochloric acids. That's going to be quite hard to. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pilot a ship with hydrochloric acid. No, exactly. Depending on what um, sort of vessel they're using to transport the hydrogen, it could be any any range of um, hydrogen carrying compound. Uh, that is then easily separated the other side. So I've got a question for you. I've got a question for you. I'm just so th there's an issue with scaling, and, and, I, and I I know I push the idea that we need gigafactories and we need lots of one thing made small in large volumes the same way all the time. And and this waste is not something that lends itself to that. And plastic waste in particular, it does need large projects that are suited to, to where all the plastic is, that are sited where all the plastic is. and and it, it But how do you scale that fast enough? To I mean, the pro, this is going to be a huge problem. Plastic and other waste is going to be a global problem, and if it's not part of a recycled environment. But 
how can we turn? It already is a global yeah, it problem. Is. It already is. A yeah, problem. but Simon, it's not. It's not yeah. been the problem we've addressed. We've been addressing the shift to uh, renewable energy, and I think increasingly we need to open up our editorial to include this, which is why I'm excited about this. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. It is. It's a huge existing problem, uh, but it's you know it's going to be a more people there are the more the bigger the problem gets exactly i think when we're looking at green hydrogen production in the future it will be dominated by electrolysis but i think there will be as much waste to hydrogen as technically possible and as sort of commercially as 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 and as much as can be commercially accepted by certain governments um and how they can organize their waste management systems i think that's the the barrier there obviously it's not something that we're going to see gigafactories built but that being said it could be a really, really cost-effective way of producing hydrogen. I mean, we've spoken to Waste2H in the past. Um, companies like Boson uh, Technologies are, um, are creating a very similar plasma-assisted gasification process for waste, all of which basically produce hydrogen as well as a normally a solid waste that you can then uh, either sell into some extent or you can you can store somewhere quite easily. So it's not like storing carbon emissions. Um, and the fact that a lot of these, these systems are closed loop mean that the emissions that would have come from the waste otherwise, the methane emissions, uh, largely from organic waste, certainly, uh, those are avoided, which is why a lot of this waste um, waste to hydrogen uh, in methods can be often claimed to be carbon negative. One, one issue around that is how much pre-processing goes into the waste and whether or not the waste needs to be dried before it's used. And that's certainly an issue that needs to be addressed there to make sure that the full scope of it is considered when you're looking at the emissions. Um, but it certainly does have the potential theoretically to be carbon negative. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm loving this because economically, it's always going to be the cheapest route. You know, people will take will basically pay you to take the rubbish away. That's so, the thing, so yeah. you start with a chunk of money. And and I but I think it's gonna be the slowest route to scale. So what's gonna happen is electrolyzers are gonna win the day and then slowly this creeping lower a class of project based economics, which is a, which is more financially viable and has to happen, will start to take over a significant portion of hydrogen production uh, you know, come twenty forty thereafter um you know I, I think that that's probably the scenario do you agree yeah i think you're right and i think because obviously the immediate when you're looking at the energy system the immediate race is to decarbonize that and it's just getting rid of the carbon emissions and i think as we move towards 24 to 2050 that's when the sort of circular economy starts to really take off and it's when the attention starts to look at how we can address issues like waste because they obviously will be will have a huge population by then it's probably edging towards 10 billion so it'll definitely be something where we, we need to address that waste i mean and as you said peter the um the cost that companies normally pay for their waste to be handled i mean in california uh, municipalities must pay i think it's over a hundred dollars per ton of waste uh for the handling fee so if you can take if you can take that as a producer of hydrogen in a sort of thermolysis plant or a pyrolysis plant um basically one being developed by h2 industries or one of their competitors then that instant instantly is some revenue you've got from just taking the waste before you even sold the hydrogen so that's why um these companies are saying that they can already technically produce hydrogen at a cost that's lower than gray hydrogen some some think that they'll be able to basically give away hydrogen for free as a byproduct of their their waste management that, that's what i was thinking yeah i think that idea is is that, that they could even make a huge profit uh clean up the world and give and make hydrogen a trend towards zero that would be phenomenal outcome yeah, and I think it's I think it's the way things are going. It's it's the, I mean there's issues. There's definitely engineering problems that need to be solved. As I said about the drying of the feedstock, 
Um, but it, we're seeing pilot projects already showing some success in South America. This week, we saw the, the UK approve its second waste plastic to hydrogen plant. Um, and I mean, while they're obviously a small scale, I think we could start to see like commercial scale projects in the next three to four years. And then I think that's when, there will st as you said, Peter, we'll start to see projects come online in incrementally. But yeah, it's, pro it's project by project. It's not going to be a sudden... Um, commodified boom of oh but, this is yeah but if i'm a, i'm a waste company I, I immediately want to solve this puzzle on my own uh, dollar um and and then sell the uh, benefits of it overseas and and to neighboring neighboring municipalities so i i think that there's uh, going to become a new qualification a kind of waste engineer uh, a sustainability waste engineer uh, there'll be degrees in it and the people who have those degrees will earn a ton of money and it will uh, it attract some of the smartest brains on the planet. And I think that's an inevitability. And any uh, smart university who wants to make the first step in that, um, you should step right up because it'll, it, it's, it's inevitable. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, the, the other sort of broader benefits of being able to prevent the emissions, the toxic emissions from waste, like the dioxins and so on, I think that's another benefit. I think it's kind of a no-brainer when you're looking at the circular economy and how we can be sustainable within our energy sector i think that's something that definitely has has a lot of potential and i think there are ways to h boson and, and h2 industries are probably are the three leaders in that so they're companies that i think we'll we'll watch very very carefully from now on you watch them carefully you just check how much money gets flowed into them because they, they could absorb billions and billions and still make money exactly yeah okay um all this and more in uh, this week's uh, weekly analysis section of Rethink Energy. Um, you go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. You click the energy button. You can read this, the, the weekly analysis for free. You, uh, If you need forecasts for your business on any of these subjects, you can buy them from us. Uh, we charge a single price, $4,600 for a, a sub corporate subscription. Um, and uh, you can contact uh, Simon Thompson, uh, uh, or Simon at RethinkResearch.biz if you've got any queries. Uh, that's the end of this week's podcast. Uh, another exciting episode next week. We'll see you then.